So as, as Daniel said, today is a special day, and I really like it because some of you who have been in a Bible study with me know that I value ecumenical conversations and diverse conversations even across Christian spectrum. And I value it because I think, and I said it, uh, I was uh, recording pre, uh, Children's Chapel today or earlier this morning, yeah, a little early, but I was recording it, and one of the things we said is each one of you is a unique puzzle piece reflecting the image of God. That each one of you is reflecting the image of God. And I think that is just pivotal for our Christian understanding and frame of reference. And the reason I think so is because I think our faith is always about we, us, and ours together and that we can never assume that the we, us, and ours is specific to the we that gather in one particular place, or we that hold ourselves to one particular flavor amidst the like ice cream bar of different ways in which people worship and gather. That it is, our faith is about we and then ours together. And that ours is a global reach. And you know, friends, that comes with some, um, some questions, but I also think it comes with some hope that we are a global body of believers when we say we gather around the table. Uh, uh, one of my favorite cathedrals, and I know I have mentioned this before, but favorite cathedrals that I have been to is the Cathedral of Our Lady of the Angel in Los Angeles. I, I like to journey into uh, Catholic masses as much as I'm able to, and one of the reasons I do is because I can just kind of like go in and no one knows who I am. They don't know I'm a pastor. They don't know I've been to divinity school. I can just sit like you all in a sanctuary space and just worship, and I really value it, and, and in that context, it's just like a uh, kind of a contemplative experience. But that particular cathedral is even more powerful for me because if you've been to it, you, when you come up, the, the image of Mother Mary and of Jesus, they have all sorts of like Native American and all the, like other hints within the images of the people, that, of the stuff that you see as you go in. But then lined up in the sanctuary, t- facing the, the altar table, are tapestries on both sides, just like probably like the Six feet, they probably hang down if they were in here, and they're just lined up. And people from all over the globe, both saints and children and everyone, is lined up facing the communion table. And you get this image of the heavenly throne room as you worship around the table. And I just think it's so beautiful because it's a, just a pivotal reminder for us of our global faith. And that we gather globally and throughout time with all those who are there at the table. It's just a beautiful way to come to the table. Friends, the past year and a half have been difficult, yeah? Can we (laughs) shake our head to that? But it's not just the past year and a half. I was just, you know, we're coming up on, this is the end of our sermon series, The World is My Parish. And we're just about to move into a new sermon series. This is kind of a a transition one for us. And the new sermon series is talking about living with enough and how that can change the world. 
And one of the reasons we're going to be talking about this is because there's a, a giant global kind of gathering for a climate, you know, summit coming up, and I think it's Glasgow, Glasgow, I forget the name of it, but, and, and it's coming up, and it's been on the news, I've been listening to it on, like, BBC podcast, that's what I do when I take the kids to the radio, but one of the things that stood out to me is that they had an interview of some, this, like, researcher with kids, and the researcher, you want to know what the researcher said? Said that adolescents, millennials, and younger millennials, and Gen Zs are fearful of the future because of climate change. That they are afraid of what the future is going to be because of climate change. And this is a global research, right? That they're worried, and, and then when asked also, are we doing enough to make the changes? And you know, they say, we're not sure. And they are just unknown and uncertain throughout the globe. And I just thought about that, and I just thought, wow. There is a generation, and I think it was like 50 to 60% friends, that said that they were worried about the future as it relates to climate change. 50 to 60%. And I thought about it and I said, oh my gosh, this is such a massive problem though. What do we do, right? What do we do? But the thing is, is that we have all sorts of problems. <laughs> all sorts of problems. Climate change is one of them. But we've uh, dealt with over the pandemic, the pandemic, right? We've had the, the image and the views of racism within our society, and we've had, you know, bipartisan, like, divide, you know, January 6th, all sorts of things. And whenever I, like, open the news, I get a level of depression that comes over me because the problems of the world are just massive, and we all know it because we all see it. And you think to yourself, well, what can I do? what can I do? I can't go to the White House and change the policies that are about to take place. I mean, we got our one senator on this side of the island, right? You know, like, what can we do when the problems are so massive and so big? Friends, I've said this before, but today's scripture is the craziest scripture out of them all. Truly it is. I think it's, it's the wildest thing God ever did. It's the end of what Jesus had just done, right? So it's this writer, Luke Acts, says, Theophilus, this is the next part of the story. This is the next part of the story. Because it started with Jesus and it gave his life and all the crazy and amazing things that he did, you know, fed 5,000, healed the, uh, the sick, you know, recovered sight to the blind, all those things. But the power of Jesus is really in the book of Acts, at least that's what Jesus said. He said, you will do greater things than me, which of course I, I was skeptical of as someone reading through Luke and knowing some of the church history. But Jesus himself here, at the end of his life and ministry, is there present, and he is saying to those that have gathered, but wait, it's going to get more exciting. None of them believed him, <laughs> right? No one believed him. I don't believe it, even to this day. And that's why I say this scripture is the wildest out of all, because this is the scripture when Jesus, the image and embodiment of God on earth, hands the baton to you, to us. He does. Jesus hands the baton to you and to me, to that collective we, our right? And us. 
And he says that the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will be my disciples and you will spread the good news in Judea, Samaria, and all the world. And if I was there in that moment, I mean, granted, you had the two white people, like in the like white robes that showed up miraculously, and you just saw Jesus going to heaven. You saw all sorts of crazy things, but I would still have a really hard time believing that we will embody Christ in the world, right? If I was in that moment, I'd be like, exactly like the apostles that asked the question. So Jesus, now is the time, right? Now is the time when you're going to fix everything. Because that's what he was supposed to do. The Messiah was supposed to come and overthrow the powers that be and set Jerusalem right again. Free from the Roman Empire, the kingdom of God on earth, all rights or all wrongs have been righted. But they they were looking around and they saw, this hadn't happened yet, Jesus, Right? Like, and as he's kind of like <laughs> drifting away, you know, I get, get the image of the disciples that are gathering, everyone that's gathered, as Jesus is kind of like ready to go out. And they're like, hey, wait, wait, you were supposed to do something still, right? And I'd be w- right there yelling with them. And then like, I kind of like get this image of like Jesus kind of like, as he's like going off, he's like, you know, but you're doing it. But it's you. You got this. It's like that time when my kids learned to ride a bike, right? <laughs> we took this crazy parenting technique that I think is like from my age, we, it's like get rid of training wheels. You don't use training wheels anymore. So some of you like have, you know, kids, I have grandkids or some of you parents that you know this, that you give them a balance bike. And this is a little bike with two wheels and they can put their feet on it like this and they like ride around and they start gliding a little bit and you're like, oh yeah, they can balance themselves, right? But then the, like what they tell you is if you use a balance bike, don't get training wheels. Just get them on the bike and push them. And I tell you what, <laughs> I, I was very skeptical of that. You know, I just like, I'm going to push them? You know, like, just like go? Like, sure enough, Hudson, four years old, we got his bike. He got his wheels. We left the training wheels out. He didn't even know what training wheels were. He just got on his bike. Okay, okay, Hudson, we're going to trust, okay? And then it's like, He's looking back. He's like, no, look forward, Hudson. And then, you know, got it and run with them, you know, holding the, the seat in the back. Every parent does this, right? I run in the back and then, you know, kind of give them that nudge, right? And then what do I yell? You got this. You got this. And the craziest thing, he started, he started riding. It actually, it actually worked. So tell your, fa- your family about it. The balance bike, it worked. He had no training wheels. Just got up and started riding. He didn't even fall. Just when he stopped, like, stopped moving, he just all of a sudden like tipped over a little bit. But that's what Jesus does to us. It seems like the craziest things to go do this without training wheels. But Jesus tells us to go. And Jesus told those disciples, and Jesus told Paul, Apostle Paul, who was actually like fighting against the early Christians, right? You know, he was trying to actively persecute them. And then Jesus like shows up to him and says, no, you are going to be my ambassador now. I think it goes all throughout Asia Minor. And I bet if you gave the Apostle Paul, like if Jesus would have handed him a map at that time and said, these are all the places that you're going to go now, he would have been like, no chance, right? You know, like, this is not possible. But he did it. 
he did it. One thing led to another. You met one friend and, you know, one thing led to another and he was going from, you know, Asia Minor on a boat through the, like, fabric textile industry over to Corinth and started meeting some people in Corinth and all of a sudden, you know, he started building these churches all over. All over, he started building them. Never would have imagined that God would have done that through him. And as crazy as it sounds, I believe that God does give us that baton. And the problems of the world are huge, (laughs) right? And so we might be tempted to yell up to the clouds like, when is the kingdom coming? And thinking about this sermon and the world is my parish and World Communion Sunday and the problems of the world it's easy to get discouraged, though, even though the global world of Christians, but the global problems. But I truly believe that there is hope. And the hope begins, I believe, locally, in these micro-communities. The hope begins as we that gather online and in person here at Kailua United Methodist Church find our seat at the table, and start owning some sense of authority over that. And what I mean by that is to to actually believe that we can do something, that I can do something to be hope in our community. And the truth is you can. Truth is that we can, and truth is we have been in the past. But it doesn't begin as a a global change, as the, you know, like us going to the White House and changing what's going to happen there, us fixing climate change. It's going to begin in the smallest, most local ways that you can imagine. And that's how the movement of Methodists began. Back when John and Charles started gathering together at Oxford, they started studying scripture and then inviting some others to do it. And then they started these small groups outside of the sort of Anglican churches. They started these small groups so they study scripture and they start visiting prisons. And then all of a sudden, John ends up in Georgia, you know, working with orphans and doing different things. And one thing leads to another. And all of a sudden now, United Methodism has spread globally. Hey, Ash, can you put up on the picture of global Methodists throughout the world? I, I just thought, so this, this movement, our movement in the United Methodist Church began just as some like outside Bible studies for church. And look throughout the globe. I mean, it's hard to read it, you know, it's a little bit, but like the, the darker the red, the more concentrated of Methodists globally. This is Methodists and Wesleyan, so kind of like the movement of the Wesleyan. But like we're all over the globe. What started with just a, you know, small house meeting and going to the local prison and standing upside on the local cobblestone preaching the good news led to this globally. And when we think of like our local United Methodist Church and what can we do, you know that we give a significant amount of our money every year as, as just you're like tithe. You're just like, oh, here's my, my little tithe, right? Whatever it is. You give to us, and we pool that together. And one of the, our biggest budget line item, one of our biggest budget line items is called apportionments, which is where, you know, we give to the United Methodist Church, and we support the ministries of the church. Go to the next slide, and look at, uh, up here. Nope, the other one. Is there another one over there? Yeah, that's, that's there. It's kind of hard to see. 
It's a little small, but you can kind of see. I'm right here. Hey. But you can see, these are all those, all those little dots up there, right? Are all the, the mission places of the global United Methodist Church missions. You can even see, uh, if you go back and you go online, and we can send the image out. There's an image right over there, uh, kind of in between India and Africa. Of a little, you see a little head. That's Andrew. He was a pastor at Parker UMC in Kaneohe, and now he's in Cambodia. And did you know Sue Pignataro, who's in this room, and Deborah Tom, who's our leader of our SPRC, Staff Parish Relations, they went there. And they visited Andrew, who's got three different missions going in Cambodia, and that we have supported. We've supported individually and given that to them, but we've also supported this network through our tithe and our offerings. That little, little gift, small thing, small kind, becomes something bigger and on this World Communion Sunday, when I think about all the people that have gathered around the table, I, I look at this next slide. One more. And, I, and it's a global Christians. Global Christians. And that's percentage of the population. That's Christian. And if you have one thing to take away is that, I don't know if you did know, but global south is like taking over as far as like Christianity. Like they are becoming the most Christian portion of the world. But I was reading a professor from Duke, Ellen Davis, who, uh, that's good for the slide, thanks, Ash. Um, Ellen Davis from Duke, she's working on biblical studies and the ecological crisis. And you know what she says? And she's been to like, Africa like a number of times to different regions and building relationships. She's Episcopalian, and she believes it's the local church in those areas that's going to have the ability to change. I mean, Think of us. We're a, a diverse people. I mean, we've come from all over. People that have born and raised here. I'm from Minnesota. Like, I, I know that we have people that are worshiping with us online all over, too. And if we commit to make a difference as a church, locally, and we stand alongside all those people on those maps that gather around these tables, boy, think of the things that God could, could do and has done and it's hopeful, isn't it? I know that, uh, uh, and I've mentioned this before, I was working in North Carolina. We started a garden with the Parks and Recs. And we started a garden with the Parks and Recs at the church, but then we also were partnering with the um, UNC, University of North Carolina, who is working to do education and outreach in the community. And they said, we just want to get into your pulpit, Brian. We want to get into the church. And we want to get into the other churches in the area because we think that if we can start to connect to the people in the pews, we're going to have tenfold the impact because when they hold their conventions, the same people show up, right? Same people who are already concerned or already interested. But their outreach strategy was to try to get into local churches, help raise awareness about food deserts and the power of local agriculture to change the world, to change the world. And friends, it is hard to think that we can change the world. It really is. Remember, those problems are huge. Pick one. And we're going to be talking about a number of them over the next month together. But pick one and say, what will I do about it individually? And then what can we do about it together? Not like all of us globally, but just us that gather around this particular table. And God can do amazing things. 
And the reach now is more than ever. I was just uh, online at a virtual conference, the Leadership Institute by Adam Hamilton. I know some of us are, you know, watching a sermon, uh, Bible studies on Adam Hamilton, and perhaps you've heard the name. He's a leader of one of the largest Methodist churches. Normally, I wouldn't be able to go because, I mean, it's like a long trip, costs a lot of money, have to stay there, all that. Definitely wouldn't have gone with COVID, but I was able to attend. And this is kind of a takeaway. Is that one of the things he said that the pandemic has done that he thinks is really powerful is that it's allowed the opportunity for people to evangelize in ways they haven't ever been able to. If you say to someone, hey, my pastor said, had this really encouraging thing on Sunday morning. You should check out his sermon. They just think you're like, you know, trying to evangelize them. But now everyone's pastor is online, right? It's not weird at all. I said, all of a sudden, these small groups were popping up because, you know, Joe invited Bill to watch a, a sermon. Not even the whole worship, just watch a sermon. And then you know what he did? Give him a call afterwards. Different states, he said. And this community formed and the outreach expanded. You taking the willingness to say, I'm going to change this small piece of me, my local community here, Kailua, can lead to an invitation to someone else, either in the community or someone mainland, wherever. And then all of a sudden, you might see that the Holy Spirit's at work in you and moving us from something that was stuck in Jerusalem, a small sect of this crazy follower who did some miracles, to Judea, to Samaria, to all the world. You might not change the world right now, but you can start by changing the world. You can start right now. I invite you to pray with me. Gracious and loving God, the world is our parish. And we stand aside Christians all throughout the globe to whom also the communities around them is their parish. And you pray that everyone who gathers this day with us around the, the communion table would just believe you know, that you know, you've given us the baton, you've let go of the backseat of the bike, And that we might share hope and love and joy and kindness and peace, even small ways here and now in our communities. We pray this all in the name of your Son, who's crazy enough to think that we can be his presence in the world. Amen.